HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area. And we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio. And we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's and their studio because they talk to people who are, are serious about food. And that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We, we just care very deeply about, about you as a, as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain. And, and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to, to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and, and care about learning everything there is to learn about it. And that's, that's we're kindred spirits. If it's something worth having in your kitchen, you're going to find it at, at Fairway. And if there's somebody worth talking to about food, you're going to find them on Heritage Radio, and we will be supporting you guys for a long, long time. At Fairway, I'm your personal grocer, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today, I've been thinking a lot about um, how, how we've come full circle here. Because uh, years ago, people, not that long ago, 50 years ago, um, people didn't really care about the food that we eat. Now it seems like we're all obsessed with local product and organic product or small farm-raised product, uh, what we put in our mouths. Thank goodness, because it's really quite important. Uh, cooking 50 years ago was what was chic was convenience and frozen foods, boxed mixed mixes, um, processed foods became all the rage. And no one really thought of taking on the American food system as a really legitimate way to change the world. And it seems now we have all of these movements that are taking on American food systems. In fact, it's spreading across the world, um, really challenging the food systems to see how they can be so much better. 
And I'm wondering what all of a sudden caused it to change. And I have a guest today who can help answer, if not the why, at least the who helped it change. And that is Judith Weinrob. Judith has been a longtime print journalist. She um, has worked for the Washington Post and has written uh, papers and articles on on politics and all kinds of things, and then suddenly became interested in food and the food system. So as a reporter at the Washington Post, she got herself assigned to the paper's food section, and the rest is history, as we say on this show, if not every place else. So welcome, Judith. Judith has taken on, she, she has taken on, she's still in the midst of it, I believe, if not completed, an oral history project that through NYU's uh, food studies program in the Fales Library. And she has managed to get a hold of a lot of the people who, in fact, have been the movers and shakers in taking on the American food system. The project is called Voices from the Food Revolution, People Who Changed the Way Americans Eat. Welcome, Judith. Nice to be here. Uh, Judith, what my question to you is... How did you get interested in this topic? How did this come about? And what did you find out? Well, you know, in in some ways my own personal history has something to do with this because I was raised... um, in a very food phobic family, and as a res- uh, and my mother was a teacher, and as a result, there were not a lot of processed foods um, in my home. In fact, there was a lot of food in my home. But um, and so, I, I as an adult, I came to all this in a sort of virgin state. And when I, um, uh, you know, being a little bit arty at that time, I l- looked at amazing things like the Alice B. Toklas cookbook and uh, kind of offbeat things as opposed to the the kind of cookbooks that many people grew up with in their home, whether it was the Settlement Cookbook or Better Homes and Garden or whatever. Um, I lived um, in New York and uh, I I experimented. When I got married, um, my husband and I moved to London and everyone had said to me, the food there is totally terrible, of course, but it turned out it wasn't. It turned out that it was really a matter of money, because when I got there, I realized there was astounding fresh product. There were greengrocers on so many street corners. Uh, There were uh, seasonal vegetables, if you, especially if you extended that seasonal to uh, and local to the rest of Europe. But there were vegetables from England, from France, from Spain, from the Canary Islands. I mean, it was just, uh, to me, it was sort of extraordinary. There were all these beautiful products and uh, fresh bread and fresh butter and. So meat. this is when you really got turned on to food. Well, huh? I saw things in a um, a way that was very exciting, and I was. Um, so excited that, uh, in fact, long before it was uh, necessary or desirable, I even made my own baby food because it, you know, it just seemed like why not? This is really <laughs> totally simple. So you know, there I was quite interested in this. Um, so fast forward, you went into journalism. Fast and you were forward, writing. <laughs> fast forward, I went into journalism. I was writing um, when this opportunity uh, to join the food section came up, and that was in 1996, when. Most of my friends at the paper thought I was completely out of my mind to um, consider doing this. I had been, at that point, covering uh, mostly uh, uh, cultural 
subjects and interviews and uh, it just seemed kind of interesting what the food section was looking for at that time was somebody who knew how to be a regular reporter because after all this was Washington and so you had government policy and things right. like that to deal with and yet somebody who was interested food savvy right? in, in, yeah. in food and yeah. so um, well, I know you did get you did kind of combine the political with the with the cultural and you got very involved in the in the farm food bill I did yeah. um, uh, the food farm bill right. that was um, well as and people like to insist on calling it now the food and farm bill but um, uh, that was a a little bit later but first I just became interested in who the people were and what they were doing and also what people were eating I found this rather fascinating I I remember one of the first stories I wrote had to do with um, the extraordinary desserts that were on menus all the time because I who ate these things? You know, I, mean, right. I just couldn't yeah. imagine. But I, I guess through that, I, I learned about the kind of people who then were starting to go to culinary school, who were um, uh, becoming pastry chefs, becoming regular chefs. There was a very good school, uh, culinary school, uh, nearby in Bethesda, Maryland. And um, I just became, uh, you know, in some ways you approach these things like a foreign correspondent when you're uh, coming to a new subject. Mm. So in 96, I mean, this the, the movement was really just... You know, getting some traction at that time. Um, certainly, restaurants had gone, were, you know, had surpassed whatever they had been years ago, and they were really um, quite, you know, quite on the on the upper, you know, say they were, high you, end of, of of the food chain in in terms of starting to get more local product and more fresh product. They were, but people didn't really know it because I remember even not being too sure. And really, nobody was except the chefs who were doing it. What new American cooking was mm-hmm. uh, that, of course, had a lot to do with a fresh local product. But um, it took really a while for people uh, to become interested. And well, so well, so tell me about these this um, oral history project. Tell me how that came about. What 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 started that? Well, when I. Um, decided to return to New York, to leave the Washington Post and return to New York. I tried to figure out, you know, what I had the um, skills to do, and I became interested in oral history interviewing and took some training at Columbia, uh, which has a very good program. And one of the things about oral history that's very important, that justifies the whole movement, is if projects are designed to throw light on a, a larger historical subject. And as as part of uh, one of the classes at Columbia, um, I the, the the larger historical subject that I was particularly interested in was how the way we think about food had changed dramatically. Um, so that was um, what I began thinking about. I did that actually. Um, I guess no, I, I was here at that point. But I, at the same time, I also had a. Um, uh, a Kellogg Food and Society Policy Fellowship, so I was uh, kind of immersed in things like the Farm Bill, uh, and had much more awareness of that than, and also got in, uh, got to know who the people were who were interesting, who were thinking about things. Right. Like that the was Farm well. Bill. That was my next question: was how did you decide who to interview, and how did you you know make this list, and did you? Well, was I, it was it all of your choosing, or did you? have certain guidelines from NYU that they were required of? Well, of I would say requests more than guidelines. <laughs> requests, but, um, okay. what, what I tried to think about was what some of the changes were. Um, at that point, I guess, uh, um, 
15 almost 20 years so yeah so you had a sketch you had an out you you sketched an outline then of, of well I, you know, without realizing without realizing that that was what i was doing I, I tried to think about what the landmarks of change were and of course they they went back obviously to julia child um and uh her television shows but also uh, because her editor worked with other cookbook writers, that approach to dealing with one particular cuisine began to um, become very prevalent in cookbooks. So I wanted to speak with some of those people. Um, I, I think one of the most important things uh, that in the change in the way, way we think about food, which um, people haven't talked about uh, all that much was the Immigration Act of 1965, which really changed mm-hmm. the way uh, Im- immigrant populations could come in, making it possible for people to bring in their own um, food traditions. Right, and the first opportunity for many Americans to to taste a lot of these different dishes and a lot of these cuisines. So I guess you know that was part of it. That looking for f- uh, people who represented and talked about foods from these other cultures, people who had written these new cookbooks, worked on these new food magazines. The other uh, tremendously, I, I think the two most important things are the Immigration Act and the resurgence of the farmer's market movement. Right. So th- that was very important. Then, of course, there was the expansion of the restaurant scene, um, food television, whatever we, uh, whatever boundaries that it has exploded now, um, was a very important way people began to learn about food. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there has been, of course, during this period of time, an increasing awareness of the problems within the American food system and food supply. And perhaps because I lived in Washington, I, w- uh, I was more aware of that than I would be living in New York. Although certainly if I'd lived in a farm state, I would have been um, uh, very interested in that. And inevitably, the food writers, the critics, the bloggers who chronicled uh, these developments. Or as you call them, the transporters of 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 this change. I mean, the people have to write about it, so right. the broader population knows about it. That's right. Well, what when you um, unfortunately, you can, many of the people who you might have wanted to to extract this information from had unfortunately since passed away. Um, so you were really getting those who knew and had been associated with some people. On well, in the case of. Um, of uh, the late James Beard, yes, that was really true, and I, and because he had come from the West, uh, I th- think he had a more um, open attitude toward, or, or uh, natural attitude toward using fresh product uh-huh. than other people. I, I guess what I regret is um, that there wasn't time, space, money to talk to people who knew Craig Claiborne, because I think uh, people in the East, people who. Uh, uh, knew Craig, Craig Claiborne's cookbooks, knew how absolutely crucial Right, and they, his writing, and his, and, writing and his writing, and being the first, you know, true restaurant critic for for the New York Times, which, you know, was was really groundbreaking. I think indeed. so, but what I don't know was how conscious it was on on his part. He just uh, loved food. Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not sure he was. I'm not sure he consciously was thinking about what was changing, but uh, he he obviously was observing it. But anyway, I tried to, um, given the parameters of of the money, the time, everything, tried to interview people who represented some of the different changes um, that had taken place. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some of those people that you interviewed and also the process of the oral histories when we come back. 
This is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. Hi, and welcome back. I'm talking with Judith Weinrub, who has completed a very interesting project uh, for NYU called Voices from the Food Revolution, People Who Changed the Way Americans Eat. It's an oral history project. And Judith, um, this project is complete at this point. Is that correct? Uh, it's complete insofar as the money will stretch, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it always? It always gets down to that, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I know I when I went to search it on online, it's not um, the interviews will be accessible online at some point that we posted, I think. Well, they not, It looks I, like the format was set for them to be accessible. I'm not sure how, accessible. How, how many will be, and again, I think that's a question of, of money, mm-hmm. but um, in terms of the digitalization. But they certainly will be available in transcript form and in audio file form if you go to the Fales, Fales library. Fales library at NYU, right. Which is the special collections library. One, our wonderful new collection of cookbook uh, cookbooks and ephemera and now this oral history project. Uh, what m- one of my questions um, that as we were talking during the break is the importance of oral history projects. I mean, it is it's. It, you tell me what what really drove you to go and, and learn about how to do oral histories, but what you feel the importance of, of these oral histories and projects well, like you this know, are. Uh, over over the over my journalism years, it always amazed me um, when people were willing to share with you details that you hadn't read anywhere. I mean, it, it really in quite an extraordinary way. Um, And I think in this particular case, since I chose the people uh, along um, with Marvin Taylor, who is the head of the Fales Library, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the... to to throw light on the changes that had um, taken place, obviously that was was what I was looking for. Now, did you um, pitch the topic to Marvin... Uh, or did or somebody it, it else kind of developed. It developed. I okay. mean, they certainly the, the library was certainly interested in uh, including some oral histories um, in their collection. But I didn't answer your other question thoroughly. <laughs> if you, um, when you talk to people, you get a body of information that th- there just hasn't been room for in in print or these days, uh, even online. As much as there is um, online. And when you're talking to people who were actually witnesses to what was going on, um, they can provide information that's enormously useful. Now, it would be useful either to people who are interested in the changes that have taken place, people who might be doing biographies of any of these um, individual people, um, people who are interested in trends, or people who just really want to know more about um, some of these characters who might be their personal heroes. Right. I mean, uh, well, I mean, everything is it today is edited down to the perfect soundbite. And as you say, we lose all that what some consider the extraneous information, but in fact, is is really what makes that person tick. It what makes them motivated to do what they were doing. Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, Madhu Jaffrey, whom I did speak with, who of course um, wrote uh, the first Indian cookbook to really influence. Um, uh, Americans, the, the great actress Mother Joffrey, right. she was uh, certainly motivated by the way she had 
learned to cook from letters from her mother once she was in England and in this country. But she was also motivated by um, the need and the desire to um, support her three daughters and to send them to school. She was in a second marriage. She she wanted to make sure that... um, like all of us, um, that her children's needs were taken care of. Um, that kind of thing, I guess, um, surprised me. Um, another thing that surprised me was we all, now we all take food television for granted. But food television was not created um, because of any passionate interest in food on, on anybody's part. Um, it was really created um, to try and figure out whether you could support a cable channel through ads alone, or whether uh, you needed a subscription fee. And I was there, fee. and I knew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that nobody would really think that that right. was the case. It's, it's, right. it's, it's available. They think everything just, it, it just springs into action, and it's so nice to know the backstory, you know? Absolutely. Uh, what, what were some of the challenges that you faced in, in trying to extract some of these histories from your subjects? Anything? Well, the hardest thing is always to talk to somebody who has... Um, written an autobiography because that person has edited in and edited out all the details that they um, they want. So you have to a, a very key factor in all of this is allowing people to feel safe enough and relaxed enough to uh, come up with other kinds of information rather than the set story that yeah. they put forward. Yeah. I would think that would really be the hardest. They, in, in some ways another thing that's been a little difficult is that people well, in oral history, the the uh, people that you interview are allowed to go over the transcript and either fix things or delete things if they really want to or change things if they have to. Um, and it's very hard for people to get used to the sound of their own voice, to get used to the sound of things that aren't perfect sentences. I, I mean, I've been interviewing people so long that I, I am used to the sound of my own voice. It's, <laughs> it's not... Um, terrifying um, but it's and and so it's very hard for people to let go of a transcript that presents them these are public figures many of them in less than a perfect way right right I kind of like to think that I'm doing a little oral history project here every week on this absolutely <laughs> no, and even though it's focused on culinary history and here we are talking about these people who were change makers even just over the past 25 years and some 20 10 years in some cases talking about them as though as as history they are history i mean history was in history in the making for many of them um i know you interviewed dan barber in fact let's let's talk about the different categories who was the youngest yeah exactly um you had several different categories and you have you start with in the beginning well, in this case, um, James Beard, who came to New York from the rest West, really had uh, a background that invited the use of, of fresh local product. We take that for granted now. Um, that certainly was not anything that could have been taken for granted in the post-war years, I'd even, uh, that is to say post-World War II, and even uh, in uh, the 60s. And he matter. had a circle of acolytes and, and people who you know, carried his word and, and were very active in, in one sense or another, writing or, um, or producing. Or helping or him help, write. And helping him, right, exactly, editing his books and, and co-authoring in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, the likes of whom were... Well, John Ferone was uh, a, a longtime editor and who became a, a close friend of uh, James Beard, and so he he knew um, 
a great deal. Barbara Kafka, who has mm-hmm. written you know many books of her own, uh, of, of you know terrific books, worked with him. Um, Irene Sachs uh, helped write one of the books and and had interesting stories about what it was like to actually work with him in his home. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane White Yatsi was uh, a, f- a friend of his and her husband who had um, created some of the f- first Italian restaurants in New York that really f- featured regional food. Um, both could reflect on that and what uh, knowing James Beard was like then. And uh, Clark Wolf, who uh, was in in retail at, at that point when he first met James Beard but became a close friend, could also talk about that. And uh, then you moved on to the activists, the people who were actually doing things. Well, the activists, I mean, here I also betray my own um, Washington heritage here. <laughs> um uh, you know, as I said, the the, the um, growth of the farmers market movement was a, a very important factor, and it, in these changes, and and Barry Benepe was uh, one of the founders of the green markets here. He just, he really revived the the whole farmers market movement. It's true. It's um, and um, Hillary Baum, who as it who actually was, is probably. Uh, I don't want to say better known, but certainly known for the fact that she um, is the daughter of uh, the restaurant impresario Joe Baum, nevertheless has been enormously active in helping farmers markets all over the country and helping children uh, become involved um, with, with the food system. I would say if there's one, one name today that's a, that's a true activist in food systems, it's Hillary. I mean, Hillary Baum is really a, a you know... And I'm, I'm really very activist. pleased that, that she was a, able to... Um, uh, participate in that. Uh, Dan Imhoff is not local. He's really, I guess, the only one who doesn't have a New York correction, uh, connection. Um, the head of the library was interested in um, in having him participate, and I knew Dan because, um, as part of my Kellogg Fellowship, I had worked with him uh, on panels that had to do with the previous Farm Bill. He knows more about the Farm Bill probably than anybody um, in this country, probably even than the legislators on Capitol Hill who are involved in writing that massive piece of legislation. And he can articulate what it's about in, in ways um, that, uh, that are clear, that few other people can. And his own personal history throws light on how um, someone of his age, just about 50, um, became interested uh, in this movement. Hmm. Um, Dan Barber is the youngest person that I spoke to, the the, um, the chef, Dan Barber. Um, and he has resisted considering himself an activist. However, of all the chefs out there, he who had a very good education is comfortable speaking, is comfortable writing, um, has learned to be comfortable being on things like the President's Council on uh, Food and Fitness and and physical education um, and so watching his uh, his him go over the trajectory that took him to the pl- this place is very interesting um, one of the things that he also insists on is that he wasn't a very good cook in the beginning which is a little hard to believe but we have to <laughs> since he's become such a great cook we have to take his word for it <laughs> well there's learning curves for some people and learning curves for others and they're they're always on a different level I'm sure um, then you then you have a category you call the carriers of change well I, I felt um, uh, uh, 
that there, there are ways in which these uh, changes become more prevalent. Judith Jones, the great uh, editor, Judith Jones, Jones, who um, really, who started her career in in Paris by finding um, this this little diary of a Jewish girl in Holland um, who uh, turned out to be Anne Frank and and brought that book to the attention of publishers in America uh, and has has worked with uh, great writers, um, became a Julia Child's editor when the book was th- uh, the manuscript, a huge manuscript was thrown on her desk and she working with Julia Child she helped shape the information so that it was uh, presentable in a way that well, we all ate it up, didn't we? We, <laughs> we did. No other, and no then other. she went on and then she went on to champion so many other cookbook writers over the years as well. Um, Gus Schumacher who is a, a, a I have to admit, a personal friend of mine, um, his, uh, to me is very important. He um, was the Commissioner of Agriculture of Massachusetts. He was the third in the Department of Agriculture in the Clinton administration. He has done more to educate journalists and writers in this country than any other person in, in politics in this, um, in this area, including being very active on uh, farm radio. Um, that said, his New York connection is that his grandfather and father had uh, farms here, uh, and the original farm was at the corner of 72nd Street and Broadway. Hmm. And when I have seen the um, some of the photographs of that farm, or pieces of that farm, you can actually see the little triangle where the subway station will be uh, would eventually be built. Um, uh, growing up, he um, he was an active farmer. He's probably uh, in his class at Harvard. He was certainly the only parsnip farmer um, that they <laughs> ad- admitted that year. And those parsnips paid for his education. Um, but but mainly, he has been this wonderful teacher to uh, journalists all over the country, and is and, and continues to be. Um, Michael and Arian Batterberry, the late. Great, Michael. Yeah, you Batterberry. got to interview him just before his death, which was nice. Uh, it was it was really really wonderful. Um, they started the Food Arts Magazine and and um, and, and, and food and wine and, and food and wine, right? And and before that, um, they were also involved in. Well, they had written a, a books for children. They 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 wrote a great deal, um, and I mean they're both so so knowledgeable. Michael, um, an extremely elegant man. Um, has uh, did so much as an activist uh, helping new farmers, immigrant farmers, young farmers, women farmers. He took a, a really active role in, in spreading the word and in helping uh, people uh, have access to, to the kinds of either money or, or understanding laws or, or whatever they needed to get things going. So it wasn't only the high tone of... Um, uh, of, of Food Arts, which is really a, a magazine for the trade, but it was everything else that he did. And even in um, Food and Wine, what they originally wanted to do was to appeal to people of different levels in this business so that recipes would be presented in three different stages, depending upon how um, uh, how skilled you were. But right. that all of that represented a way to communicate with right. the public. Well, unfortunately, we don't have time to go through each each 
person that you interviewed, but you do have a wonderful range. You have the writers, Betty Fussell, Mimi Sheridan, Gail Green. You have the entrepreneurs, Michael Whiteman, uh, Reese Schoenfeld, Tim and Nina Zagat. Uh, you've got educators, Jacques Pepin and Marion Nessel, Dahlia Carmel, who started the Fales Library collection with her donation, which is wonderful. Um, and then, of course, the television chefs, the real chefs, um, who then also ended up on television. And it's just a wonderful collection of voices and stories and and information. And I encourage anyone that to check this out at NYU at the Fales Library downtown on West 4th Street. And it's I, I think there's something for everyone, something to learn about the food movement from everyone in that collection. And and I thank you for sharing your background and information with us. My great pleasure. It must have been a fun project. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking to people who are willing to share their lives with you is, is really a, a great privilege. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. Again, this has been A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. This particular article comes from Grist, which is a wonderful website. Uh, To satisfy the legal system's pesky demand for environmental impact studies of novel GMO crops, the USDA has settled upon the brilliant solution. Let the GMO industry conduct its own environmental impact studies or pay other researchers to do so. The USDA announced the program in the Federal Register for April 7, 2011. Of course, the biotech and agrochemical industry has applauded the new plan. Karen Botcher of the Biotechnology Industry Organization told the Oregon-based ag journal Capital Press that the program will likely speed up the registration process for GMO crops and make the USDA's approval less vulnerable to legal challenges. Capital Press summed up Botcher's assessment of the plan like this. The pilot program will not only help move crops through the process more quickly, but the added resources will also help the documents hold up in court. In other words, the industry plans to produce studies that find its novel products environmentally friendly and fully expects the USDA to accept their assessments. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Check out a small clip of Chef Smarty Pants, a.k.a. Erica Wides, talking about radishes on her show, Why We Cook. Those supermarket radishes were like that. They were all heat and no flavor and woody and tough, and they were always kind of beat up and buggy looking, and they looked like crap. I don't understand why they were sold. And they were in that plastic bag all sealed up for like six months. Why buy them? We always put them into our salad growing up, and I would just pick them out. And my mom still buys them. She still buys those bags. To me, those bags of radishes are like the ultimate symbol of industrial produce. They're grown for size and for color, but they taste like balls of wood dipped in nail polish remover. I don't understand why people would eat them. So I never understood the appeal of the radish.
until Want to hear more? Tune in live to Why We Cook every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m., where you can find all the old shows on our archives. Also, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Just Food. Help bring live chickens into food challenge communities through your donations to the Just Food City Chicken Project 2011. The City Chicken Project would not be possible without the volunteer hours, donations, large and small, and the vibrant energy and ideas of the communities we work with. Just Food is a nonprofit organization that connects New York City communities and local and urban farmers with the resources and support they need to make fresh, locally grown food accessible to all. To donate, search on kickstarter.com for Just Food and find their City Chicken Project. For more information on Just Food, visit JustFood.org or call 212-645-9880. That's 212-645-9880. Let's keep making New York City a better place to live and eat. The following is a message from Zingerman's. From June 30th to July 3rd, 2011, come hang out at Camp Bacon, a four-day festival hosted by Zingerman's. The main event is an all-day affair at Zingerman's Roadhouse, featuring plenty of bacon, bacon learning, and such luminaries as Alan Benton, John T. Edge, Molly Stevens, and more. The event will be taking place in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Proceeds from this event benefit Southern Foodways Alliance. Also, on Friday, July 1st, there'll be a special benefit performance featuring Andre Williams and the Gold Stars and special guests John Langford and Skull Orchard. Visit www.zingermanscampbacon.com for more information and for tickets. Once again, that's www.zingermanscampbacon.com.